The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for the opportunity now to sit beneath your word and to be taught by your spirit. You've gathered us here for that purpose, to, to commune with us and to teach us and raise us up to mature us and then to draw from us praise that honors you. And so that's what we pray you would now accomplish. That's your purpose here this morning. Would you accomplish that? Would you work into us and then draw out of us, work into us your life and your truth and then draw it out of us in praise and and kingdom service that is useful to you and to other people and good for us and honoring to you. Would shape us, be at work here this morning, teach us, open up this passage, and grow us up from it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. With so many women away this morning up at the women's retreat, we're going to take a pause from our study through the Gospel of Matthew and instead look at the Old Testament book of Jonah. So turn to Jonah, and as as you do there, you might find it's a little difficult to find because it's one of the minor prophets of Israel. It's called Minor because the book that bears his name was only two pages long. It was kind of short. It's about 15 pages from the Old Testament, if you're turning there, right between Micah and Obadiah. Jonah. We'll be focusing there on the final chapter of the book, and what we'll find there is similar to something that we've been seeing in Matthew, so far yet, this, this, as we've been studying through Matthew, and yet it adds a little bit more to the picture as we listen in on the conversation that God has with Jonah outside of the city of Nineveh. Now, the book of Jonah is pretty familiar to many of us, but in case it's been a while since you've looked at it, or if it's new to you, a little bit of the context. Jonah is a prophet of Israel, and he is sent in, in chapter 1, verse 1, he is sent by God, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, says God. And Jonah, the prophet, says, no, I am not doing that, which is, which is amazing for a prophet to say to God. He has no interest whatsoever in going to Nineveh, and in his mind, he has his reasons. Nineveh, while a very large city, was the capital of the Assyrian Empire and was really wicked. For a long time, it had caused a lot of pain and a lot of trouble for Israel, but also for a lot of other people. I mean, they were universally not nice. A really troubled and troubling place, and Jonah wants nothing to do with it, so God calls him there, and he says no, and actually says, I'm going to go in the exact opposite direction, heads towards the city Tarshish, far to the west. And God redirects his steps. So in chapter 1, there's a big storm. Chapter 2, Jonah's in the belly of a great fish and is now fully aware of God's sovereign control of his life and is at least willing to outwardly obey God, at least outwardly. So when God calls him again, chapter 3, verse 1, which is kind of a, of a repeat of chapter 1, verse 1, calls him to go again. This time, Jonah does go to Nineveh, preaches about God's pending judgment over the, the city and the people. And as he does so, the people of Nineveh, from the least of them to the greatest, including the king, hear it, believe God, and repent. They turn from their wickedness in hopes of mercy 
and the sovereign God who was behind it all and is never fooled saw that their repentance was genuine and forgave them, as was his intention all along, which is why he sent Jonah to preach in the first place. A great mission's success. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Book of Jonah. Now, let's be sure we understand the details of this passage here. In verse 1, Obviously, Jonah is livid. What has just happened was exceedingly wrong in his eyes because these people deserve your judgment. Just like I said to them when I preached. But I knew, I just knew you were really out to save them. This is so wrong. Forgiving the wicked and pardoning the unjust. If this is the kind of service you're going to force me into, I'd rather be dead. And the Lord asked Jonah a question, are you right in being so angry? So angry about this? About these people not perishing? And it's just left hanging there. The narration moves on, it's left hanging there, but, but we know the answer. Something's way off in Jonah's thinking here. We get that as we're reading. So it's left hanging there in verses 5 to 9. Then Jonah left the city, built a little structure for himself to watch what happens. Maybe he's hoping that God will change his mind. Maybe he's thinking that their repentance will prove false and short-lived, and then God will change his mind. But for whatever reason, he's still done with Nineveh, but God's not done with Jonah. And what God does here now is he creates a, a teaching opportunity, if you will. Watch how God appoints. 
First, he appointed, says this three times, a miraculously fast-growing plant in order to save Jonah from his discomfort, to relieve his discomfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad. You can almost see him say, now that's how mercy is supposed to work and for whom it is supposed to work. Okay. But the very next day, God appointed a worm to destroy the plant. And then as the sun arises, God appointed a hot east wind, and the sun beats down, the wind blows, and Jonah is miserable. His plant is gone. He is lightheaded, and again, he is angry enough at his circumstances and the God who appointed them that he just wants to die. And again, asked him, are you, God asked him, are you right to be so angry about this, about this plant that did perish? Really? Jonah has an answer this time. Yes, of course I am. And that response brings us to the last two verses of the chapter, last two verses of the book, which really are the key to the whole thing. And so from the last two verses, we're going to draw out two observations. Here's the first. God has compassionate concern for lost people, and so must we. God has compassionate concern for lost people, and so must we. And this point is very similar to what we've been seeing in the New Testament in Matthew 9 and 10. But it's going to add on just a little bit, which is kind of why we're here this morning. Add on just a little bit. So kind of keep that in mind, kind of hold that off to the side here. But, but this point is pretty clear, pretty similar. It's right here in verse 11. Should not I pity, that is have compassion, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city full of lost people? What do you, what do you think, Jonah? And of course the answer is, yes, you should. But why? Not because of anything in Nineveh. Not because Nineveh is good or because Nineveh is worthy or Nineveh has opportunity to be good or opportunity to be worthy one day if they would just you know, kind of get a second chance and shape up. It's not because of anything in Nineveh. They, they are a wicked people. God says they walk in evil. He's real clear on that. And everybody else would have been too. When he emphasizes they are this great city, as he does repeatedly throughout this book, he's emphasizing great in size, not great in, in character or, or potential. It's not because of Nineveh. Fundamentally, it's because of God and God's own nature. Verse 2, while Jonas spits it out kind of angry, verse 2 actually is true. He's quoting the Bible. Jonas, Jonah the prophet is quoting the Bible. That's how God introduced himself to Moses back in Exodus Exodus 34, right after the golden calf incident, by the way. God made himself known to, to, to Moses there as the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. That's how God made himself known, and Jonah knew that. It's the character of God. A lot of phrases there, and they get kind of fleshed out in the contrast that God creates for us in verse 10, in, in chapter 4 here. In verse 10, Jonah does have the kind of attitude that God has and that God is looking for in us and his people. God even uses the same word, pity. Jonah has pity now, just like God has pity. Jonah has pity for, concern for, compassion for the plant. And why 
pity this destroyed plant? He says, I mean, you didn't make it. You didn't labor over it and deliver it and bring it forth and then work over this long time to nourish it and cause it to grow up. It's, it's obviously the, the language of agriculture here, but it's also strongly hinting at the language of, of parenting children, of, of laboring, of, of working to bring children into existence and then to raise them up and, and, and kind of nurture them and grow them. All of that process creates a natural bond between the, the parent and the child or God and people. And Jonah, you don't have any of that with this plant. So, uh, I mean, you pity the plant, but why? I mean, he's asking this rhetorically. Why, Jonah? Well, purely, is this not obvious? Purely because the plant's welfare or lack thereof affects Jonah. Jonah's concern for the plant is actually completely concerned for himself. And that's a little piece that this passage adds in, adds into what we've been seeing in Matthew. So kind of hold that over here too. We'll come back to that. But the point here is, is obvious. You have no history, you have no connection to do anything, anything for this plant, but God, on the other hand, is the creator and sustainer of all things, people especially, Ninevites included. And he's not just being gracious and loving and slow to anger towards them right now in this moment of, of this incident with Jonah. He has always, people from the very beginning, have been precious to the generous and giving God are valuable because they are made in God's image. They are image bearers. He made each one of them out of love for them and sustained each one of them out of love for them over many years. He labored to create people and then to beget each individual person and then he raises them up and nourishes them and protects them and is patient with them and slow to anger with all of their sin over many years. There is creatures by generous, other-centered love. God loves people. God made people in his image. He sustains them all in mercy and grace, causes the sun and the rain to fall on the good and the not good. Both. Is that not in the Sermon on the Mount? They are precious to him. People. And yes, people are sinners. For sure. And that can't stand because God is also holy and righteous and just. For sure. But in verse 11, God adds in another little piece of the reality here, the reality of their ignorance, which adds some nuance to this. The image bear fallen and twisted and marred, but part of that also is this element of ignorance. He sees their lostness and he sees their blindness. Very similar to what we've seen in Matthew 9. As Jesus looks at the, at the people there, at the crowds. Remember 9, Matthew 9. If you were here, you'll recall this. After the healing of the blind, blindness. Remember the miracles have a message in them. After he heals blindness, 
moves on in the very next paragraph to delineate crowds and Pharisees. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And as he looks at the crowds, not the Pharisees, as he looks at the crowds, he has compassion on them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They don't know which way is left, which way is right, where the food is, where the, where the grass is, where the water is, who's going to protect us from the wolves, sheep, the mass, the crowds. Drove Jesus' compassion. Similarly here, driving God's compassion. He looks at them and sees them as blind and unable to know what is true. Now, note this. This is very, very important. Some people will take what I just said and then will immediately move to, therefore, everybody is fine. Nope. Jesus and Matthew did not. God here in Jonah does not use blindness or a lack of understanding as a trait that somehow eliminates human guilt. Let me be really clear about that. Let's get that really clear. He does not use blindness as a get-out-of-jail-free card. It isn't. God sent Jonah to preach judgment because they were guilty. And if they had not repented, they would have perished. The blindness is no excuse. Moral blindness, moral... Moral ignorance, moral lack is no excuse. It's actually what the problem is because we're sinners, we're blinded. But God says, I look at that and I see not just sin and culpability, but I also see right next to it, this is, this is hard to nuance here, but I also see right next to it, think of a couple of passages of Paul in the New Testament. I see people taken captive by Satan to do his will. That's Paul in 2 Timothy. I see people whose hearts have been blinded by Satan. That's Paul in 2 Corinthians blinded and captive. I, I see them in sin I, I, for which they are guilty, but I also see some enemy who has attacked them, who has enslaved them, who has blinded them. So what he's saying is not that they're innocent, but what he's saying is that it's not high-handed sin like that of the Pharisees who sin against their knowledge, who sin saying what Jesus is doing is from Satan. Baloney. No way. There's nothing about what Jesus is doing that sounds or feels or, t or looks like or tastes like hell. It's not from Satan. Not a chance. But they're saying it anyway because they know they do not want Jesus. Pharisees and the crowds that are saying like, what, 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 what? Like sheep. Jesus is saying, I look at the crowds and I see sheep. God is saying, I look at Nineveh and I see sheep. Most of the people that we know are sheep. So we don't probably know many, many Pharisees, many big people. Some maybe, sure, maybe. But most of the people that are in your office and in your neighborhood and on your sports team at school, most of those people are just sheep. They have no idea what's going on. And God, in compassion, says, so I'm going to send a prophet to tell them. They must repent. They're guilty. But they don't know how guilty. They don't know who I am, really. They don't know who they are, really. People. He's after people because from their creation they were and even in their sins still are special and valuable and precious to him as image bearers. 
They are creatures with souls made by God in love to reflect him and to receive from him his generous grace to commune with him and to enjoy him and thereby bring him much glory, but who have been kidnapped, hijacked, attacked, victimized by the evil one. That's how he sees people. And his compassionate heart of love longs for something different for them. It's the heart of God. Longs for it, and so he is slow to anger. Longs for it, so he holds off judgment. Longs for it, so he approaches them in mercy. But what's going on in Jonah 4, and in the whole book of Jonah, why, get this, why Jonah is in the Bible. The whole reason for it, this is the thing that takes us one step further than what we've seen so far in Matthew. This is the heart of God, obviously. That, that's just like Matthew, Jesus and Matthew. The point that goes a little further is that quite obviously, this is the heart of God, and quite obviously, this is very, very clearly not the heart of Jonah. The prophet Jonah. The book of Jonah is more about God dealing with his own people represented in Jonah than it is about God using Jonah to deal with Nineveh. That's the sideshow. We often read it otherwise. We often read it as if, wow, this is an amazing story about Jonah and Nineveh. No, it's an amazing story about God and Jonah. Nineveh's the sideshow. A absolutely, he did, he did something marvelous for Nineveh. That meant a whole bunch for Nineveh, yeah, but Nineveh is just the sideshow. The real point here, the real lesson, is one about hard-hearted, self-focused believers who are more concerned about their own comfort than they are about the perishing of people. Jonah looks at Nineveh, at, at all the world. And of course, this is the question being asked of every one of us quietly. Is this you? Jonah looks at Nineveh, at the world, and what he sees are sinners in rebellion who have made life awful for him and many others, and he wants justice. Now. Yesterday, if it could have been, but at least today. He wants them to pay for what they have done to him and to his people and how they have messed up everything else. And he's angry. you believe it? That God didn't destroy all those precious, harassed, helpless, blind, sinful human being image bearers who do not know their right hand from their left, who are lost. And he's angry that God did destroy the freebie supplemental shade plant that was helping out him. Wow, Jonah. Jonah's us. He 
Is it you? How much is it you? To what degree is it you? When is it you? Thank God that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's who he is. And thank God that's who he is because that's what we needed him to be and still need him to be today. When we find ourselves more like Jonah than we want to be. May the Lord be patient with us like he was with Jonah and lead us to repentance like he did with Jonah and align our hearts with his heart and open our eyes to see the world and to see people like he sees them. By nature, the Lord of all the earth, by nature, the Lord of all the earth is bent towards mercy and forgiveness and restoration. And obviously, if this morning, if you're not a Christian here this morning, obviously that, that message has, has meaning for you. He's bent towards mercy and he's calling you to repent, for sure. If you're not a Christian this morning, you're in Nineveh's shoes and, and he called Nineveh to repent and he offered them and then gave them life. But really the book of Nineveh, the book of Jonah is not about Nineveh, it's about Jonah and us. We need different hearts here. And Jonah, when you understand Jonah, uh, I think Jonah is one of the stiffest Old Testament books. We misunderstand often because we make Jonah about a big whale. We focus on chapter 2, and there's a lot going on in chapter 2 for sure. We, we make Jonah about something that can go on a flannel graph easily in children's church. This book carries a, a, a sharp point for believers about our hearts towards the non-believing world. And when that when that comes at you, let, let me encourage you here, if this, if this comes at you and you feel like, whew, don't dodge that point. Take it in. Receive it. And do with it what it's, it's, what it's supposed to do. It's, it's supposed to lead us to repentance and then to the, the great hope that the God who is calling us to repent here is the same God who is verse 2. He's the same God who forgave Nineveh. He's the same God who introduced himself as verse 2 to, to Moses. He, he's the God who is slow to anger. So don't, don't hear this as God saying, get in line. God's questions to Jonah are, are gracious and, and they're drawing him out. God's creating of this teaching opportunity so kind. He, you can hear him. Are you right to be so angry? He just wants to like grab us and draw us in. Is this right? Something wrong here? Think about this for a second. He's drawing you in because what he wants to show you is not his heart of judgment, his heart of slow to judgment. It's not his heart of anger, but his heart of slow to anger and his heart of mercy and grace towards us. We're in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ. You don't stand under wrath. But you might stand in need of change. So let, let, that, let that come and say, 
okay. Got me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for getting me. Because it's his kindness that's going to lead us to repentance. And we want to be different. We want to, we want to have a heart like him. We want to be different. So compassionate, concerned hearts towards the sheep of the world. That's what God's heart is. That's what he wants our heart to be. I am not saying that as easy it is for sure hard, but it's, it's the work he wants to produce in us. How does that happen? Well, I, I think it, it happens most in me when I double back around and I look at that heart of God towards me first and pray, not just, Lord, will you give me a heart of compassion, but Lord, will you show me your heart of compassion that was for me first? Will you cause it to be known to me, felt to me? And it could be that it'll be known and felt really even in this particular moment of seeing your own hardness and seeing how you live for your own comfort. Say, ah, oh, that's convicting. Oh, your kindness, that you would do that for me, to grow me up, not to condemn me. And I'm not condemned, Christian, and you're not condemned. But if he wants to grow you up and is laboring to nourish you and, and mature you, that's a good thing. That's his mercy and his grace to you. So behold the mercy and the grace that's in him right now, perhaps, as he's sticking you. For me, that's the thing. I think that's how God designed this. But certainly it is how it works for me that I grow in mercy when I see his mercy. I grow in love when I see his love. It's his kindness that leads me to repentance. That's how God means to work with us. And so I'm praying. I would encourage you to pray, Lord, not just make me compassionate, but Lord, show me your compassion. Cause your mercy to sit on me heavy sweetly so that I would see what you're like and that I would feel it fill me with that sense of your forgiveness of me fill me with the sense of your you're holding me you're securing me and when that happens what'll what'll happen is that you will be able to let go of the world because you, you'll be able to let go of I need it to go this way to be okay no, I'm, I'm okay in Jesus It'll free you. You believe that he has you now and he has you going forward. It'll change you. So pray, Lord, shower me in your mercy. Give me strength to know your wide, long, high, deep love for me. Fill me with yourself chasing out myself. When that happens, you'll be okay and you'll look at the world with the eyes of love like he has. And that then will move you to act like he does, which is the second point. God has a heart of compassion for the world, and so must we. And God, secondly, acts to offer mercy to the ends of the earth, and so must we. Here's the second observation. God acts to offer mercy to the ends of the earth, and so must we. So this is not just his heart. It's the action that flows from the heart. He delays enacting justice, delays enacting justice, so as to make a real offer of mercy first. 
That point is also very clear here. It's kind of what's going on in the story of Jonah. For whatever reason, in the province of God, he has decided to address the sin of Nineveh now. Chapter 1, verse 2 kind of implies that he's acting in answer to prayer, but it doesn't say that for sure. We, We don't really know why he decided right now. But humbly and patiently, he decides to deal with Nineveh's evil at this moment, right now, by sending an offer of mercy. Which sometimes people say, I mean, Jonah went and he preached judgment. He did. But he knew what he was doing, which is why he didn't want to do it. This is exactly why I went to Tarshish. I knew you were going to, I knew, I knew what this was about. If you were about to destroy them, you don't need to send me. Just do it. He knew what it was about. And actually, Nineveh knew what it was about also. God, if you read it, he didn't actually say, you know, maybe God will have mercy, but they repented knowing that God might have mercy. It was about sending mercy. And chapters 1 to 3 are about God's determination to make sure that message comes to them because he wants it to come to them. And by chapter 4, the end of it, obviously, it's nothing's clearer than he has had pity on Nineveh. He addressed their sin by withholding judgment for the moment and first offering mercy. That's what he did. He didn't just have compassion, he actually acted on it. And the fact that he acted on Nineveh, Assyrian Nineveh, does tell us something about the scope of God's heart. How far his compassion reaches. Nineveh is about 500 miles by land, but it might as well have been the ends of the earth because of where it was religiously and socially, what kind of a place it was. It was the ends of the earth. There were evil and violent people. This is not just a story about how God's calling back like wayward Israelites or maybe even like. Philistines right next door. This is, this is out there. It's a reach. Because he reached for them, though, it tells us something. The main point is about how God's dealing with Jonah, but the, the fact that he did it in the context of Nineveh means that he's trying to show Jonah something about his scope. It's not just for people who are not quite as good as they could be. The people who are way, way out there them too. He's kind and merciful to even those who are far off. There is no one who is beyond the reach of God's mercy. That's right here on the surface. But what's not right on the surface of this Old Testament story, which we do need to make explicit for a couple of reasons, one for us and one for others. What's not right on the surface of Jonah needs to be made explicit. If we're talking about God offering mercy and God offering mercy to all kinds of people, not destroying but instead forgiving, we, we talk about that, we have to also be aware, but God is holy. And God is angry with sin. Bible says that too. He's just, righteous. The Bible says that too. 
So how do you square these things? And the message for us is that there is a way to square it. And as we keep that in mind, we can, we can leave judgment in God's hands. Jonah's got a bit of a problem, which we sometimes have a problem with the folks that we're approaching. We say, but they're, I mean, wicked. We just like ignore that? Nope, there's, a way, there's an answer. There's a way to square that. A message for us here, for us as we wonder, and a message for other people who say like, oh, good, God just forgives. God forgives everybody because he's nice. No, he's, he's forgiving in one particular way. There's one way that the, the merciful and gracious and compassionate, holy and righteous and just nature of God squares up. One way. As we'll eventually see in Matthew 12, one greater than Jonah has come. It's Matthew 12, it's coming up. This is all pointing towards something in the future, which for us is in the past, and we know it. One who resembles Jonah but is superior and surpasses him in every way, Christ. Christ also was sent for the saving of many, like Jonah, but for the joy that was set before him, he willingly embraced his calling and its cost. He also spent three days in the heart of the earth and rose up from its depths, became the instrument of salvation for a multitude of people. But he's not just the spokesman about this salvation, he's the instrument. the source of it. In him God dealt with sin and atoned for it and washed it away from all those on whom we would have mercy. This is the only way that this squares up. The only way that God can be merciful and gracious and righteous and just only in Jesus is there an offer of mercy. The world needs to hear that only in Jesus is there an offer of mercy. There is not a blank for everybody who wants it, I'll take it in whatever way I want to take it. Nope. It's offered only in Jesus. In his cross and in his resurrection, the only ground for salvation, the only way that God can satisfy his justice in punishing Jesus in the place of those who trust him. If they don't, every person who does not will perish. But those who trust him will say, Thank you. Thank you for the mercy you offer me in Christ. The world needs to hear that. We need to be really clear about that. When we're talking about, in a compassionate way, if we're approaching people and saying, there's a God who is gracious and who is slow to anger, we have to be clear and the world has to hear clearly in one way. Jesus and his cross. They need to hear that, but we need to hear that also because a bunch of us, we often, as we, as we look at something that says, you're calling me to be merciful towards people who are awful, Ninevites even, we need to hear, 
There are two ways this squares up. One, either he puts their sin, if he forgives them and you stand there saying, how did they get away with that? Christ died for them. That's how. It squares up in the, that Jesus took onto himself the wrath of God like he did for you. Or they don't get away with it and they perish. Neither one of those two things are up to us. We're not talking about how people get away with something. We're talking about how people can come to know sin passed on to Christ and him crucified for them, which is the gospel that applied to us too. Or we're talking about people who hear that and then turn from it and do not repent and perish. Nobody gets away with anything. We need to hear that so that we can, in, in good faith and in, in rest, offer even to people who have afflicted us. Here's the one hope. If you take it, you'll be forgiven. And if you don't, you won't. Christ is the only way, the one greater than Jonah. And God wanted to actually, actually wanted to save people, which is why he sent Jesus. That's, that's clear. God acted not just to save Nineveh in sending Jonah, but to actually make it possible to save anybody, he sent Christ. That's really clear. For people of all tongues and tribes and nations, of all degrees of behavior. He's acting every day to take this message, this one message of this one hope to everyone. That's what God's about. And no category, no race, no lifestyle, no past sin habits, no evils, no category of titles puts anybody beyond the reach of Christ. That's what he's about. And that's what we're supposed to be about. Not every single one of us to every single place. Remember as we talked a couple weeks ago about the harvest field. We're, we're not all to harvest all of the field. We're not all to have the same job in, in, in every single corner of this field. But the, the point that we can draw from the fact that he went to Nineveh even is that the harvest field stretches from end to end, corner to corner. It is over all of the globe, all sorts of people. And we're supposed to be in it, every single one of us. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to be in it in some way or another. His Spirit wants to deploy us into that. And perhaps before he does, he has to do a, a, a Matthew 9 compassion, a Jonah sort of compassion heart work in us. Amen, please do so. But when he does that, then he'll send us. And so in a very real way, we, we have to have in our minds that we are about the harvest. We're, we're about in some way extending not the judgment of God, but extending the, the offer of mercy first. And that's going to look different for every single one of us. Sometimes that's just going to look like praying for opportunities and approaching people with a heart of compassion in your workplace and seeing what happens 
Sometimes it's going to be doing that in your own families with extended relatives or your own kids or your own parents. Ministry looks very different. It's a wide spectrum. But it must not exclude also the very, very, very farthest ends of the earth. Again, Nineveh pushes that point on us. It's not just across the spectrum locally here. It's across the spectrum there in all the nations. What God's about is every tongue, tribe, and nation. Him known gloriously as the merciful and gracious Savior, slow to anger, not never angering, slow to anger, not never judging Offering mercy first. He wants himself known like that in all of the nations. That's the thing that God is doing to display to everybody here and there that Jesus is the mighty Savior and the great King and the good shepherd that everyone needs. In some way or another, that's what we have to be about. And if we're not, we're missing something. Genuine concern, a heart that sees people and sees the world as he does and then does something about it. That's what we are to be as his people. That's what it is to be Christ-like sees the world and sees people like he does and then acts to do something about it in the ways that he's gifted you, in the places that he's put you. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Harvesters in the field, fishers of men. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.